Welcome to the Unity Baptist Sermon Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Calloway. I serve as the student and education pastor here at Unity. In today's episode, we have senior pastor Heath Bauer bringing a talk to the table entitled, Turn, Turn, Turn. Today's scripture reference is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Stay with us to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. morning. We're going to find ourselves in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I pray that you go ahead and turn there now in case that's not a book that you're familiar with. Middle of the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you've seen the title of the message this morning, Turn, 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 and you all of a sudden a song starts going in through your head, you have outed yourself as a child of the 60s. You're thinking of the song from the birds. Back when every band was named after an animal, you had the beetles, you had the monkeys, you had the birds, you had the, who else do we have? Uh, The turtles? I mean, everybody was named after animals at that point in time for whatever reason. But the 60s were a time of great change, great turmoil, great emotional civil upheaval. Everything was changing. The hairstyles was changing. The music wasn't mom and dad's music. The, 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 the clothes that you wore, even society itself was having these great seismic shifts and nobody really knew what to do with all the changes of the 60s. And so you just have a lot of great music come out from it. You know, we just sing about all those changes. You know, in one of those songs talking about the changes in life, you know, came from the birds, turn, turn, turn. And, and if you know the song, you realize that the words of that song are the text from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that we're going to study this morning. Ecclesiastes is a Hebrew word, kaheleth, which just means the preacher. It's written by Solomon. Solomon is credited with writing three different books. The first book he wrote on love and romance, the Song of Solomon. In his middle years, he wrote the book of Proverbs about wise living. Here is how to live a a good and wise life. And in his later years, he adopts for himself the title of the preacher. So here we have this old man, and he's sitting down, and he's telling the young people, that's all of us here today, we're all younger than Solomon. He's telling all of us young people, gather around, pull up a chair. I've got some advice for you. See, Solomon is looking back upon uh, an enormous life that he just lived, and he's seeing trends and things he should have done differently, things that he wished he'd done, things he wished he hadn't done, and he wants us to learn from his mistakes. By the way, all of his mistakes was Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He said, I tried to find joy and meaning in life this way, and this way, and this way, and this way, in mirth, in happiness, in women, in building things, in servants, and none of it worked. He said, it's all vain. It's empty. And then it leads us to chapter 3, and now he's looking back on a life that constantly changed. And he's going to let us know how do we respond to all the changes that happen in life. Because try as we might, change happens in life. Continually, even now, we're enduring times of tremendous change. Changing how we do things at work. Changing how we do things at school. Changing how we do things in church. Changing how things are done in your home. Life is full of change. I don't know if you're anything like me, you're kind of tired. How do we respond to change? The first thing we're going to see here is that we respond to change with acceptance. In verse 1, we're going to park on this first point here for a good chunk of the time because it's important. Respond to change with acceptance. He says in verse 1, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter 
under heaven. He's telling us in life, everything is seasonal. Everything you see around us, it's not eternal. Everything, there's a season. You know, we think of the word season, we think of seasons of the year. Right now, it's very obvious we're in a certain season, right? We're in winter, and some of you guys are already lamenting the fact that we're in January, everybody's favorite month. We love it so much that everybody, go, everybody goes to the Carolinas or Florida during this time because we all love winter so much. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, of winter. I mean, I enjoy it for what it is, but there's some things that I don't enjoy. I don't like shoveling my driveway twice this week. Um, and if you noticed, I look like a hockey player this morning. I got a big bruise on my nose. Amber did not throw a dish at me uh, this time. But what it is, is I was shoveling my driveway, and we got a slope at the end of that with ice, and I started to go, and I threw my hand up to catch myself, and I had a snow shovel in that hand. And so I promptly took that snow shovel and I clobbered myself in the nose with it. And so uh, I'm not excited for this. I'm ready for the groundhog not to see his shadow. That, you know, that's how we feel sometimes about seasons. But you know, for every season, there's something good about it and something bad. You may hate the heat of the summer because you have to mow, but then we also get to go to a water park. So we get to spend time with the family in the pool. You know, you may not like the winter because you're shoveling driveways, but sometimes you love just walking outside and there's just this deathly still calm of all that snow blanketing the ground, and you just, you love the stillness and the quietness of it. You may love the, the, the robins and the green of spring, then you're like, kids are tracking mud in the house now. Ah, uh, spring, you know. There's, there's always some reason to love or hate every season of weather, but also in life. There are reasons to love and hate every season that we're in. The key to finding joy in this life is accept the season that you're in. We've just got to accept it. Accepting the season that you're in is the key to enjoying life. Accepting the season you're in because God is responsible for that season. God is responsible for the changes that we experience in life. And so we have to come to find a place of accepting it. And Solomon isn't just going to leave it here and say, you know, to everything there's a season, so let's just move on. He's going to say, no, 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 let's, let's pause. Let's park here for a minute. Let me give you some examples. He says, there's a time to be born and a time to die. We love a time to be born. We celebrate, we rejoice, you know, we, we have, you know, gender reveal parties. We blow up balloons and all kinds of crazy stuff. Woo, time to be born. But the Bible says there's also a time to die, that, that, that life is intended to be seasonal. Even my very existence is a seasonal event on earth, that God might, looking at my body, my body as a, as a cosmic hourglass, that as I age, I see the sands of time moving. I, can't, I can no longer eat three pieces of cheesecake and not have it affect you know, my belt size. Uh, I have my hair, it's, it's thinning out in my back, in the back end of my head, my wife reminded me. You know, there's gray there, there's white in my beard, there's time moves on, life is seasonal. And we can reject that and we can hate it and we can say, let's don't talk about death, let's avoid death altogether. Or we can accept it as a season of life and we can grow from it, we can learn from it. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago in Psalm 90, Lord, teach us to number our days so we can gain a heart of wisdom. That's another way of looking at it. We accept that life is seasonal. But he says there's also uh, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. I think of Galatians 6 here, the, the, the principle of sowing and reaping. That which a man sows, he will also reap. So we, we sow certain things in our youth, whether to good or to evil, and in our later years, we, we reap it. There's a time to be doing that sowing where we work hard. You know, my son's going through PA school and, and 
just blistering himself going through the books and the test, but he knows at the end he will reap. There's a time to sow. There's a time to, there's a time to reap. He says, uh, a time to kill and a time to heal. Biblically, God is saying that there are biblical times to kill, that all killing is not murder. You know, if you remember in the Old Testament, God gave, well, the first thing that God gave human government, and by the way, God created human government, is he says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood will be shed. And so there is a time to kill. But he's also saying that there's a time to heal. You know, that we are to be peacemakers. We're to heal relationships. We're to heal one another. There's a time to break down and a time to build up. You know, we're talking about buildings here. And we see those changes all the time. Things get bulldozed and up in its place. You know, it used to be, I think, a car wash across the street. Now we got, what is it, Dollar General or something? Or Dollar Tree? I forget, it's a dollar something. Uh, we have a different building. There's a time to break down. There's a time to build up. Some of you folks who've been around a while, you remember the old G.C. Murphy Five and Dime down, downtown. You know, and if you talk to uh, Miss Libby, like Amber and I did this week, she'll tell you she used to work there. And some of you have fond memories of going there and having to eat and buying some things. But it's not there anymore, right? There was a time to tear down what's there in its place. You know, you go to the first floor and you have yourself a Reuben on a marble rye over at the mill. You say, I prefer G.C. Murphy's. We can't change that. We can't go back. G.C. Murphy has no intention of going back there right now. So what do we do instead? We learn to enjoy what we do have. We enjoy the season of life we were in. That was a season. He says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. All life can't be laughter. In Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon proved that. He says, I, try, I tested my heart with mirth. I tried to find meaning in life by only ever always being entertained and happy. It doesn't work. Did you know God intended for your happiness to be seasonal? God doesn't expect us to be happy all the time. In fact, you know, there is, uh, he's commanded to us in James 4 9 that there should be times of weeping. I used to always love putting this at the bottom of uh, birthday cards just to see if people actually read the verse that I put under my name. I always thought it was funny. Uh, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You won't find that on a Hallmark card. But God's intention for our life is sometimes we will be wretched. We will mourn. We will weep because sorrow produces something in us. You don't usually find great piety after a season of laughter. We find complacency, but after seasons of hardship and mourning and sorrow, we find that on the other side, God has taught us a lot, hasn't he? There's a time to mourn, but we don't want to stay mourning either. He says there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to mourn, obviously, we know what that means. You know, we take the time necessary to mourn the losses we have in life because all life is continual loss. There's always something we're gaining, something we're losing. We learn to mourn properly. But as the Bible says, not with those without hope. He says there's also a time to dance. In Hebrew culture, a time of dancing, don't think like, you know, people dance into the music we have today. Think, think you know, like uh, Jewish joyful dancing. They would dance at weddings. They would dance in their worship, right, Theron? Uh, they would dance in their, uh, at these festive situations. It, it meant there was a time of rejoicing. You're happy. And so there's a time in life that God has set aside. We should be sad and mournful. We take the proper time out to mourn your losses. But, there's, but don't let that ruin the fact that there are times of dancing in your life. 
Remember, there was a period of time my wife and I were separated, not while we were married, but while we were a student, she was student teaching in college. I was still at Bible College in North Iowa, or Central Iowa, and my wife was in Kansas City, and we were apart. Even though we were engaged, we were apart, and so I would travel down almost every weekend, drive that four hours to Kansas City, Kansas, and I would go see her, and Friday night was a time of great rejoicing. We were so happy to see each other, but on Saturday morning, she was already mourning the fact that I was going to leave on Sunday. You know, she wasn't allowing herself to have a season of dancing because she knew morning was, was coming. And sometimes we can, be, uh, we can be Eeyore, can't we? And we always find a reason why we should be sad today because someday sadness is coming. So I may as well get used to it because, you know, I'm just going to continually be sad. No, there is a season for joy. And no matter the fact that we know that there will be mourning in the future, let's rejoice and enjoy what we have today. He says there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. What are we talking about? He's talking about farming here. If you had a farm and you're going to run a plow through a field, you don't want rocks there, do you? These rocks are a pain in the neck, and anybody who has, who has had a farm or a field at any time knows that you have to go and take these rocks out by hand, and you've got to cast these annoying things away. But... He says there's also a time to gather these stones together. Those same stones that just annoys you every year that you've got to take out of your field. He says there's a time to gather those stones together, that sometimes those stones have a purpose. You're going to make a path. You're going to build a house. You're going to build a fireplace. Now what do you want? You want the very stones that you used to hate. I think sometimes in life, God puts stones in our life, things that we hate, things that are cause great pain, things that frustrate us. And we want nothing more than to get past it, to cast that stone out of our life. And yet it's the very thing that God is using to shape us into being more like him, to developing character in our life. It's a stone. There's a time to cast away stones. There's a time to gather them together. And so sometimes we have to learn to embrace the stones in our life. If I were to have you raise your hand this morning, how many of you have been most shaped by the most painful events of your life? You'd probably all raise your hand. And yet often as parents, what's the one thing we're trying to shield our children from? Painful experiences. Sometimes we prevent, rather than letting our child struggle through life, sometimes we try to prevent them from ever experiencing pain. And yet that's the very thing God uses to develop the character that you have today. There's a time to gather cast stones. There's a time to gather them. He says there's a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. There's a, period, there's a season of life where we're close to those that we love. We're close to family. And we take time out to embrace. We enjoy people when they're in our presence. But there's also a time to let family go too, isn't there? We've got to let our children grow up so that they can develop into everything God wants them to be. We've got to be willing to let them go and spread their wings. He says there's a time to seek, a time to lose. This is dealing with economics. There's a time to seek out these investments, and there's a time to let them go. They're no longer a good investment. We have to learn to let go of certain things in our life that I can't keep investing if I'm holding on to some of these poor investments. We can't do it all. There's a time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. There's sometimes, there's, there's a season of life that we have things. The possessions that we have, they're all seasonal too, aren't they? especially if you bought the cheap product, you know? Ooh, there's a really good deal on this in Amazon. It comes from China, and, and you're like, it doesn't work very long. It's seasonal, but even the good stuff, it's, it's seasonal. It's, it's meant to be discarded at some point in time. There's nothing in life that's permanent. 
I think it's important to be able to let go of things in life, let go of even possessions at times, let go of houses, let go of cars, let go of things. And remember the words of Jesus when he said, beware of covetousness because life does not consist in the abundance of the things we possess. I remember as a kid when I was, uh, I think around sixth grade, nobody told me to do this. Just one day, I just kind of, in my head, flipped a switch. And I was like, wait, I'm... I'm growing up here. And I looked at my headboard. Back then in the 80s, everybody had headboards for whatever reason, so we can put up a collection of things. And so I had a collection of toys, you know, this, this panorama of toys on my headboard. And I just one day looked at that. And I said, you know what? That no longer identifies me. That's not who I am. Toys, when you think about what a toy is, a toy is pretend adulthood. You're taking this thing and you're, you're mimicking what we would do in adulthood. The only difference is it's not productive. And I realized, you know what? I want my life to be productive. And so I took all these toys and I just scooped them into a cardboard box and I put it up in the Bauer attic on like the fourth level of our old farmhouse. And they're still there to this day. I just, I just one day, I just realized, you know what? These things of my childhood where I pretend to accomplish something no longer identify me. I've got to grow up. You know, Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, what'd he do? He put away his childish ways. Changing into an adult is hard, isn't it? In fact, there's even a term uh, my kids have instructed me on that we, that's called adulting. Uh, I never had that term growing up. It was just kind of like, I was excited to be an adult. I was like, yeah, put those toys away. Let me take on responsibility. Let me get a job. But now there's a term called adulting. And it's kind of seen as sort of a negative thing. Oh, adulting stinks. It's so hard. It's a season of life. And it's a beautiful thing. If we don't just look at the responsibilities that we have, look at the freedoms you have. Look at the, look at the ways God develops you and grows you. Being an adult is a beautiful, wonderful thing. I would never going back would never willingly go back to my childhood. And yet, all around our society, it's telling us this message that childhood is a good thing. It's a thing to be maintained and preserved. What does the Bible say? Childhood is something that we put away. We enjoy it for what it was. It was a season of life, but we should not expect that we go through life as Peter Pan, where we keep trying to maintain and hold on to that childhood. There's a time to let things go. Childhood is meant to be seasonal. Like the author says in Hebrews, by this time you ought to be teachers. God expects us to grow and to keep growing as long as we're alive. He says there's a time to tear and a time to sew. He's talking about clothing. There's a custom in Middle East culture where if something, some horrible thing has happened, you know, enemies have invaded your land or a loved one has died, you would tear your clothes and you would wear ripped clothing as a visible external reminder of what is happening in your heart, that your heart, in the same way, feels torn. He says there is a time to do that. There's a time to tear. There's a time to have that mourning and that visible mourning period. But then what does he say? There's also a time to sow. When they tore their clothes, they didn't just throw it away and start over again. They would sew those same clothes back up. And what did that signify? that their period of mourning was over. Not that there isn't still occasionally pain. You still have that. But there is a time that we should sew our clothes of our life back up, that we, we come to a place where we accept the loss that God gave us, and we begin to move on with our life, just as our loved one would have had us do. It shows faith in God not to live in a perpetual state of mourning, and, it'll let, and we let it ruin our entire life, affect our entire life, shade and color the way we see the entirety of our lives. 
There is a time to tear, but there is a time to sow. He says there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. There's a time you should open your mouth, and there's a time you should... We should shut our mouths. Proverbs 25, 11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. I've never seen an apple of gold, but I'd like to. <laughs> it'd, it'd be beautiful. It'd be valuable. It's something that people would you, would, you would love it if somebody gave you an apple of gold. I can't even tell you how much that would be worth. What he's saying is a person who knows how to speak a word fitly, to speak it in the right place, in the right tone, at the right time. It's a beautiful, valuable gift that you can give to other people to learn to communicate well, to say the right thing at the right time, know when to open your mouth, when to keep your mouth shut. There's another kind of person, proverb, we have a proverb for that too, uh, Proverbs 12, 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. What's a rash word? If you make a rash decision, what is it? It's a rushed, hurried decision that you didn't really think through. So there's one whose words, he says, are rash. They don't think through it. As soon as it comes into their head, it goes right out to the mouth. There's no filter, right? It just goes from here to here, here to here. And it, what does he say that's like, people who are like that? He says those words are like sword thrusts. If you're a person who, don't fil who doesn't filter their speech, let me tell you right now, you're damaging people around you. He says they're like sword thrusts. We're, we're stabbing, we're poking, we're, we're slicing up the people that are around us because we're not filtering our words. There's a time for silence and a time to speak. Proverbs 17, 28 says, even a fool would keep silent is considered wise. How do you look smart to people? Easiest way in the world, you just don't talk as much. I mean, that's, that's what Proverbs says. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Proverbs 10, 19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. What he's saying is that when we talk too much and we just never stop talking, he says there's no lack of sin in that because you're not giving your mind time to filter and to process and give a word fitly spoken at the right time, at the right place, with the right tone, to the right people. Contemplating how are my words affecting other people? You know, it's the art of a good conversation too, when to open your mouth and when to close. You know, a good conversation is like a tennis match, right? You say a little thing, you, you launch it over into their court, and they're like, thank you very much, and they'll say something, they'll hit it back. They'll hit, but you talk to some people, it's like standing in front of a pitching machine. You know, you're getting hit in the face with balls, you're just kind of like, you're, you're shielding yourself. It never stops. They're not waiting for you to say anything. They're just, they just, you know, you're just a vehicle to receive all of their words. We want to make sure that we're using words fitly spoken. We're saying the right word at the right time, and we're measuring our words. We're thinking about how are my words going to affect the person I'm listening to? Am I communicating love? Am I asking to hear back from them? Or am I just talking at them? Usually, if you have a person who's like that, they'll let you know ahead of time. They'll just say things like, well, that's just who I am. Uh, I'm just keeping it real. Uh, I'm being authentic. Uh, you know, things like that. They, they announce ahead of time, don't expect me to filter my words. I'm just being real. Friends, we're not called as Christians to be that kind of real. That's not what God calls real. God calls that kind of speech foolish. We don't want to announce to people that we're foolish. Well, that's just me. I'm a fool. <laughs> I just say what I want. I don't think about how it affects anybody. I'm just keeping it real, being authentic. God says, no, you're being foolish. We have to be careful of how our words affect other people because the Proverbs also says there is life and death in the power of the tongue. Our words are either giving life or they're taking it. They're like sword thrusts. So we want to be careful how we speak.
He says there's a time to love and a time to hate. Now we understand the love part, but should I really ever hate? I think it's fair to say that we should hate the things that God hates. God hates a number of things. He hates idolatry, Jeremiah 44. He hates hypocrisy in Isaiah 1. In fact, in Proverbs 6, we have a whole list of sins that God says he hates. So there's a time to love and there's a time to hate. We hate that which God hates. There's a time for war and a time for peace. No, we're not, no, no, we're not excusing every kind of war. We're not talking about imperialistic stuff and expanding your borders just to make more money. We're talking about defending innocent. We're talking about uh, stopping and, and slowing down the spread of evil. Solomon says there is a time for war, but he says there's also a time for peace. We shouldn't be Sparta, just this war-mongering nation constantly looking to, to, to pick a fight with people so that we can gather more just because we have this bloodlust in our, in our hearts. There's a time for peace. And then he says this phrase again. He bookends this whole section with, to everything there is a season. He's letting us know once again that there is nothing in life that isn't temporary. And he has to say this because you and I, we acknowledge certain things are temporary. Junior high was temporary, thank God. I mean, do any of you really want to go back and do puberty again? You really want to go back through seventh grade science and, and making friendship in the junior high, senior high? I don't. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to go back to the, the years of the pimples. But he, we still have certain things in life that we feel should be permanent. Because it was this way once, it should always ever be this way. What is Solomon saying? No, everything in life is seasonal. But what about, no, everything in life is seasonal. And the, the way that we get through life without becoming bitter and resentful is we learn to accept that life is always changing. Your home is going to change. Your body is going to change. Your job is going to change. Even church and the way we do church today is very changed. I mean, you look at church back in the, in the old days, they didn't have pianos and, and, and instruments and screens and, and they didn't even have pews. A lot of times they would stand and the preacher would sit. So things continually change in life. The way to get through and enjoy life is to accept that change will happen. God is ordained to change. Why does God allow everything on earth to change? Why doesn't God just keep everything the same? I think there's a good reason for that. When everything remains the same, you and I become comfortable. You and I become our own sovereigns. We become in control and we become complacent and we come to a place where we feel like we no longer need God because I got this. And so God says, no, you don't. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna mix up your life and stir it up a little bit so that you'll realize I gotta go to God who is the only, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, he's the only fixed reference point in our universe. And if I'm sick and tired of seeing all the changes in life, I need to look to him because change forces me to trust God rather than trusting myself. And so I don't enjoy change any more than you do because it helps me feel comfortable, helps me feel complacent, and my flesh loves complacency. But God would rather me live by faith, trusting him when my health changes, trusting me when something in my family changes or our kids leave and they go off and take a job in Seattle. I trust God with that. It's the only way to live life with any measure of joy except the season that you're in. It's the attitude of Job. You remember Job. In the Old Testament, he's that man we always point to. He suffered more than anybody else. And when we think of a person, we think of Job, the Bible says he is an upright man who shunned evil. He's a man so godly, Satan knew him by name. 
And yet, God allowed him to go through trial. Not just trial, but catastrophic trial, the kind that biblical proportion trial. And yet, what did Job end up saying? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job knew what it was like to live life open-handed. He allows God to put there what he will. He allows God to take it away. There's a great sense of freedom and joy in that kind of lifestyle, in that perspective, accepting that when God brings change, all right, this is an opportunity for faith. God, what are you going to do? I'm going to trust you. But there's another person in that story we don't often talk about. Who is it? It's Job's wife. She went through the same uh, struggles, the same trials. She lost the same children, the same house, the same wealth. But how did she respond? Curse God and die. See, there's two different responses to change. And when God brings difficulty and trial into our life, one is, blessed be the name of the Lord. The other is, curse God and die. Whether we enjoy life has everything to do with our attitude toward change and not the change itself. We need to be people who live life open-handed like Job. Number two, we see that we need to respond to change with hope. He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business God has given to the children to be busy with, and he has made everything beautiful in its time. He begins by saying, what gain is there? What's the meaning of life? What's the point? I see that I work a nine to five. I pay my bills. And at the end of life, I don't really see there's a whole lot of point. You feel like Solomon, you know, when he was writing Ecclesiastes, often he would say, vanity, vanity, it's empty. What's the purpose? What's the meaning in life? But then he says, I have seen the business God has given his children to do. There's certain things, expectations of our creator that we're going to do. There's physical expectations. Be fruitful and multiply. You know, get married, work a job. He who does not work should not eat. There's certain physical activities that God has given us to do. And there's certain spiritual activities that God has given us to do as well, isn't there? I'm going to keep telling you, like I told my son when he left for college, no matter who signs your paycheck, your life's purpose is ministry. You say, but I'm not called into ministry. Yes, you are. As a child of God, you're a little Christ. You are called to minister with your part-time. You're called to minister while you're on the job. You're called to be a light wherever you go. Every single believer has a job God has given to them. He's given you a spiritual gift. It's not a, oh, thank you, God, this is a gift. It's a, it's a gift that he intends for us to give away. It's a spiritual fruitcake, okay? It's something you get that you have no intention of keeping, you know, and you're gonna hand it off to somebody else. That's a spiritual gift, The only difference is they actually like your gift. You know, teaching and serving and mercy. Every single believer has a spiritual gift that God intends for you to use to the benefit of other people. There is a job. There is a purpose. What gain is there to be gotten from this life of all this work? Have you found out yet that your life and your career and your ambitions and your hobbies aren't enough to give you peace and satisfaction in life? Have you come to that place yet? You know, sometimes we read about these these. Hollywood stars, they have everything, humanly speaking, and yet they kill themselves. Why? It's because they got to the very top. They got the kind of power and money necessary to do absolutely everything they personally want to do in life, and they still find it's empty, and they said it's hopeless, and they take their life. And yet you can have a believer here, you know, who's working a nine-to-five, you know, who's making, you know, 40000 a year, and yet they're still full of joy. Why? It's because they found that the true gain in life is by giving your life away in the service of the Lord. And so you can be an auto mechanic, you can be a school teacher, you can work at the hospital, doesn't matter. Your life's purpose is engaging in eternal things. It's what God has called you to do and called you to be. 
Jesus compares our life work as, as to a fruit tree. In John 15, 2, Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That it may, may bear more fruit. You see, God is our creator, and he wants us as a branch attached to his trunk to bear life and to bear fruit, visible evidences of the fact that we're saved. We look like God. We act like God. We do what God does. That's all fruit. And when we do that, it gives God tremendous joy because that's what he created us to do. We get joy from something that works the way it's supposed to. This Christmas, my wife got herself a little indoor herb garden. It's, it's some weird little, it looks like something off of Star Trek. It's this little white plastic thing with some crazy cosmic lamp. And she puts these little cups in there and it, it, things are supposed to grow and, and they are. Well, you would have thought that one of my children had called to announce that they're having a baby, but no, it was Thai basil. Okay, she had this herb coming up and she saw life. She's like, oh, and she was so excited. She has Thai basil. Mind you, it's this big. And we're not going to make a pizza from it or whatever you make with Thai basil. But she was so excited that what she bought did the job it was supposed to do. It's bearing fruit, and this is going to benefit me in some way. God looks at our life with that same kind of joy. He looks at you and me. He gave us a job to do. There's work that God has given the children under heaven to do. And when we do it, God takes great joy. When we bear fruit, God receives joy from that. It honors him that we're choosing to live this life for him. But when we bear fruit, sometimes he says that he will prune things that they may bear more fruit. If you ever had an olive, or not olive, but a uh, tomato plant and you're, you're, you're raising up tomatoes, you realize that some of this tomato fruit, it's covering up some of the leaves. So these leaves are now pointless. You know, the leaf is meant to take in sunshine and bring nutrients to the plant. It's no longer doing that. It's just taking up nutrients, but it's dead space. It's doing nothing. So sometimes you have to prune these little things off so that the, the plant can invest its energies into fruit and not just maintaining a pointless leaf. And so you've got to prune it. Have you ever seen like a rose bush or something else that's been pruned? It's not pretty, is it? And it looks pretty ugly. But we know that in the end, it will be beautiful. And sometimes our life is that way. We look and we, we see God pruning our life. Pruning with a plant is taking away something that's good. It's taking away something that's, if you will, even beneficial to the plant so that the plant will bear more fruit. Does God ever look at us as plants that sometimes he takes something good away from us? so that we'll bear more fruit. But how do we feel about it when God takes good things from us? Sometimes we feel resentful because we don't understand the plan of the master gardener and we get resentful for the good things God takes away. Why would he take that away? Sometimes it's because he, I'll say every time, it's so that we will bear more fruit. There is more fruitfulness as a result of me losing this good thing in my life than if I were to retain it. How do I know? Because God is sovereign. says in verse 11, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he will not find out what God has done from beginning to end. God has placed us in our hearts a desire for eternal things, things that last. I think it's interesting. God takes an eternal soul, an eternal being, puts a longing for eternal things, and then he puts us in a disposable world. Why? It's so that when we look around and we see everything decaying and falling apart around us, we're going to, our eyes are naturally going to be looking for that one thing that doesn't change. We're going to seek God because we know that he is immutable. He is changeless. 
And that changeless God who is sovereign and who has pruned us and taken away those things that we loved and we still don't understand why he did it, sometimes we just have to take it by faith that it's going to be better in the end. How do we know this? Because in our text this morning, what else does it say? And he makes everything beautiful in its time. We don't always understand why God took what he did. What can we do? Have faith that God will make this beautiful in its time. Find joy in God. If I cannot find joy in my circumstances, I will choose to find joy in God. And that's what number three we're talking about. Respond to changes with joy. He says, I perceived, because I can't change anything, and life keeps changing without me, what will I do? I perceive that there is nothing better for them to do than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. How do I respond to change, Solomon? You choose joy. And let's make a distinction. Joy is not happiness. They're not the same thing. Happiness is a sense of contentment because of what happens. Happiness is from happenstance. It's from what occurs to me. I, I get happy when I have a good meal. I go out to smoke and jays and I have a full rack of ribs, not a half, full rack of ribs, and I'm happy. My temporary needs have been met. My kids come home for the holidays. I'm happy, but I know my kids are gonna leave again too. Now what happened to my happiness? Well, it's gone. I'm happy when it's sunny out. What happens when it rains? No, I'm not. I'm happy when it's springtime, but now it's wintertime, so now I'm not happy. Okay, that's what happiness does. It comes and it goes. It comes and it goes. But God says there is a constant that we can have, and it's called joy. Joy does not, is not a result of contentment from a, of temporary things being settled because that goes up and down. Joy is something we can choose year-round because joy is the contentment we find knowing that our eternal needs are met. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's an evidence that the Spirit of God is in you and it's invigorating you and giving you life. And you can be a joyful person even though you've just lost your mate or your mate's in the hospital or you've just lost your job. And yet that person can still find joy. It's that constant. Why? Because their eyes are on eternal things that are met in Christ. But that is a skill that believers learn. That's why in James, verses one, in chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He says, count it all joy. Reckon it to be so. Choose to believe, even though your flesh says don't, choose to believe that it is true. Count it all joy when you fall into trials. You're, you're seeing beyond the temporary. You're looking at the eternal needs being met in your life. You're like the disciples in Acts 5.41. They got beaten with rods and canes and whips and whatever. And they said, don't preach in Christ's name anymore. And in Acts 5.41, what do they say? It says, and then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. We rejoice because we see there's something eternal going on that God is doing. I don't, I don't lament just that God took something away. I rejoice in what God is going to do. I know that he will make everything beautiful in its time. But you know, God still even wants us to enjoy periods of just happiness too, just to receive pleasure from earth. All life isn't just about work. Verse 12, it says that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. He's saying that life isn't just about work. We talk about work and productivity and being fruitful and useful for the kingdom. Do you know that part of God's will is for you just to rest and enjoy a little bit of life? Sometimes we can find our identity simply in what we produce. God is saying that your identity is not simply in what you produce. 
your identity is in Christ, and Christ wants you to take some time out and enjoy life a little bit. Take that vacation. Take your wife out to Bellafonte. You're welcome, ladies. Uh, take her out for some Italian. Take her out for a nice uh, date. Play with your kids. You know, put some Candyland on the table. Forget Candyland. I hate that game. Find a good game. Play a board game with your kids. Uh, go outside and take a hike with them. Take them fishing. Do something fun together. Take some time out to enjoy life, not just constantly be producing. Because even in just taking these little pleasures in life, you know, you go out for lunch, oh, I, I had a salad, I need to watch my, my, my waistline. But, you know, take some time out. Go to Wits, get yourself a custard. It's okay once in a while. Don't do it every day. But enjoy some of the things God has given to us. He says this is God's gift to you and I. Enjoy your family for where it is. You know, some of the best parenting advice we ever got from somebody is enjoy every stage. Because with every stage of our children's development, there's a reason to find joy and there's a reason to be lamenting it and trying to go, and fast forward the stage of our children's growth. You know, you got children who are in the baby stage and what are you sick of doing? You're sick of getting up in the middle of the night for that crying baby. You know, you're tired of changing those dirty diapers. <laughs> you know, you try to pretend you didn't find it. Hope your wife finds that dirty diaper first. You hate that stage. You just want to fast forward through that stage. But then we, we miss the joy of holding a baby and rocking them in our arms and smelling that little baby oil in their hair and that soft skin that they have. We, we miss that stage. Or we get to what we call the terrible twos, and we just want to fast forward that. But then we miss out on literally the best video footage you're going to get of your kids. I mean, it's hilarious. I love watching kids two to four. It's just they do the funniest things. They do the craziest things. They say things the funniest ways. Uh, my favorite footage is that, you know, we can enjoy that development of our children or we can lament, you know, some of the struggles that we have as we have to, you know, discipline, love, and instruct our children. We can be frustrated with elementary school children too, can't we? They're, they're, they're full of noise and activity and they're running to and fro. We can lament that or we can join in and we can say, hey, let's make this constructive. Let's go outside and play ball. We can lament our kids' teen years and go, oh, and we get together with other parents of teens and we can lament the teenage years. They're not bad. Instead, we can tunnel in deep to that age and go, wow, look at how they're developing for the Lord. Look how they're developing in life. They're trying things out. They're, they're becoming an adult. What an exciting stage to be a part of their life. And instead of pulling away from our teens, how about we go in deep with them and we intentionally spend time with them and find that there is a tremendous amount of joy in the teen years. Or you could say, yeah, but my kids are all gone. What joy is there in that? Well, first of all, you can go out to eat and it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> um, but all seriousness, uh, when your kid's gone, what joy is there in that? You can take joy that now we finally have this adult friendship that you've been longing for since they were two. You have this adult friendship that you have with your, your kids who have grown up like all of our kids have. You can enjoy the fact that they're bringing grandkids home to you and you can spoil them and send them home. Uh, it's, there's joy to every season of life, every season of parenting, and accepting the season that you're in is the key to enjoying it. Why? Because God created your life to be seasonal. Nothing's eternal. Nothing except for him. So we respond to change with faith, and that's the final point. We're just going to wrap up real quick here. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added, nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. They'll, they'll seek him and they'll follow him. 
He says, that which is has already been, that which is to be has already been. God seeks what has been driven away. Three times here, Solomon says, all of life and these changes that happen, they happen because of God. He says, God does it, God has done it, God seeks. The things that are happening on earth, all these changes in life that we lament and we hate and we despise, God did it. God's responsible. So what do we do with those changes that God is responsible for? We respond in faith. I believe God is gonna make something beautiful in its time. It's the only way we're going to enjoy it. God said in Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You're telling me that God is responsible for the calamity in my life? Yes, and aren't you glad? It means that your life is not a victim of cosmic accidents, that there is a limitation to the trial that you're going through, that you have a God whose hand is on the wheel. You're not out of control, but God is intentionally leading us through difficult times. Why? God does it. God has done it. God seeks it out. God's responsible so that in the end, in the difficulty, in the trial, in the changes, that will respond to him in faith. God will get me through this change, whatever that change may be. And we trust him for it. Every change in life, God has a purpose in it all. All we can do is adapt to the changes that God forces upon us. Close with this illustration. There's probably a lot of you out here who uh, have subscriptions to Netflix. And most of you, and we understand, it's, it's one of the largest, if not the largest, you know, media streaming subscription that, that's out there. But it didn't start that way, did it? How did it start out? They used to send DVDs to your home because they were competition to Blockbuster. They saw Blockbuster, you know, you remember those days of going to Blockbuster Video? That's been a while, hasn't it? I think there's only one left. It's like an Oregon, it's an Airbnb. Um, but you remember the days of Blockbuster and you, on the way home, you're gonna pick up a movie, but the one you wanted to see isn't there. So you just pick up something else and you, 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 you overpay on your junior mints and popcorn and you go home, but then you forget to bring it back in and you owe a lot of money. And, and Netflix says there's gotta be a better way. And so they said, we'll mail your DVDs back and forth. No late fees. You just, you know, send them in. But then as things began to change in the 2000s, you know, they realized we're going from physical media to digital media. And so they said, we've got to adapt to the times here. And so they did. And they, they adapted to being this, what we know what Netflix is today, this streaming company where you can watch your movies that way. It's a lot more convenient. And they gained lots of market share. What happened to Blockbuster. You can still see Blockbuster in Ashland, can't you? You go down to 13th and Pollard. It's like visiting Machu Picchu, you know, like some ancient ruin. You see, it's kind of this relic of food land and, and Blockbuster. And, you know, the signs are kind of hanging and falling apart. Blockbuster died because Blockbuster did not change and adapt to the changes that life forces upon us. We will continue to rent our VHS tapes and DVDs. And now we talk about Blockbuster in the past tense. It's a nostalgic thing. Netflix, it's still in your living room. What do we learn from that? That all of life keeps changing and that our responsibility is to adapt in a godly way to all those changes that are happening or we become an ancient ruin. We pull out of society and say, you know what? I don't like this new generation, so I'm not gonna interact with these young uns. And we reject the fact that maybe people think differently. Their music is different. Their dress is different. They have new verb verbs and terminology that we never used. Things are no longer hip and groovy. Now they're whatever they are. I don't know the words. 
I'm not that cool. I never was cool. Uh, but they're using different words, and you just feel distance. But instead of that, how about we, by faith, we press into the different generations. We learn how people think. We learn how they, uh, how they live. We learn what they value and what they fear, and we build bridges and relationships. Why? Because that shows faith. And if we won't do that as a person, if we don't do that as a church, if we don't do that as a company, we go the way of Blockbuster, and we become a ruin. We become a memory we become a picture on the wall. We become a museum. Sometimes God brings changes into our life simply so that we'll trust him, we'll adapt, and we'll continue to show love. The only things that don't change, friends, the word of God, <laughs> and God himself, the souls of men, those are the only eternal things that are here. Everything else, Solomon says, there is a season. And you know what I found is with most Christians, we're willing to trust God with our death, aren't we? but it's another thing to ask to trust God with our life. We'll trust God when it comes to going into eternity, but I don't want to trust God today. Friends, let's respond to life's changes with hope. Let's respond with joy. Let's respond in faith, trusting that the change that has happened in my life has happened at the hands of a sovereign God who has good in mind. He's pruning to receive more fruit. He's not just simply beating us over the head. Let's trust him together, can we? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning that we can pray and we can offer up, God, all of these challenges and these changes that life throws at us. And Lord, we're just gonna trust you. Lord, help us to respond to all of life's changes, body changes, family changes, life changes. Let us respond to these by faith, trusting that you have our good at heart. Let us respond to change with faith and hope and joy. Let us adapt, Lord, knowing that all of these are from your hand. You bring light and darkness. You bring calamity at times. But God, it's all from your hands. And so God, we will choose to accept the changes that life brings, knowing that all of life is seasonal, but there's coming a day when things will stop changing. But that's not this side of eternity. So Lord, while we're here, help us to respond through faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, simply click on the link in the show notes and we'll be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you've enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. As promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at Unity Baptist Ashland. Remember, if you know Jesus as your personal Savior, you are never alone. He is always near, and you are deeply loved. Until next time, have a great day.